a couple of weeks ago, we started this series and we're talking about how the church needed to shift. We had to shift out of neutral. And how for that to happen, we had to be filled with God's Holy Spirit and we had to be submissive to God's word. We had to yield to God's sovereign rule. And then we had to be committed to God's purpose. And today I want us to to take it down to a personal level. Start applying this stuff personally. This morning, I don't want you to say, well, Val's just talking about the church and stuff. And well, I am. I'm still talking about you as individuals. And how in order for us to, to move forward, we need to shift. We need to shift our attitude. I want you to take this very personally. So how does someone go about shifting his or her attitude? What does it take for someone to have a change in their attitude? Well, I think that depends on who you ask. Now, some of you may know this. There is a professional wrestler. His name is John Senna. He is actually turning. He's also doing some acting roles. And he has this trademark move. It is called the attitude adjustment. And it involves taking an opponent, lifting that opponent up over his head, and then slamming him down onto the canvas. A little attitude adjustment. Or you could ask Hank Williams Jr., who had a song called Attitude Adjustment. It involved... For Hank Jr.'s, an attitude adjustment involves, some of you are laughing because you probably already know the song, it involves a tire iron, a police dog, or a night in jail, or maybe some combination of all three of those and stuff. Now, I think maybe Jimmy Buffett has the most well-known answer, his breakout album, which contained the song Margaritaville, many of you may know that. That breakout album was actually called Changes in Latitude, Changes in Attitude. For Jimmy Buffett, changes in attitudes are the result of changing your latitude. You know, you go to the south somewhere, find a beach somewhere, charter a sailboat, get out into the sun, and a bottle of rum. And I'll tell you, there are some people who are not here with us today because they have changed their latitude. They are on a ship cruising somewhere toward the Bahamas. And I can guarantee you that if they're watching now, if they watch this, their attitudes are a little bit different right now. And it's good for them. I'm glad they're able to go. And so all of this kind of makes me wonder, is it possible for us to have a shift in our attitude? One that does not involve alcohol or barroom brawl or maybe some wrestling move? And the answer is yes. And I believe Jesus actually gave his disciples an attitude adjustment on the very last night that he spent with them before his arrest and his crucifixion. Now, a couple of weeks ago, when we last met, we actually took communion, which we do on the very first Sunday of the month. And that, Jesus did that. That's kind of the well-known part of the Last Supper. We do that. But there's a lesser-known part of that that Jesus did with his disciples there at the Last Supper. Jesus was changing their attitude. He didn't do it by raising his voice or brandishing the holy tire iron of the Trinity. He didn't take Judas Iscariot, pick him up, and slam him onto the ground. But I want you to see what Jesus did. Those of you who are willing to, I would ask you to please stand. We're going to read through our scripture. It's found in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 17. It is on the back of the bulletins if you have a handout with you. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening before, the evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas 
the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, you do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. For he knew who was going to betray him, and that is why he said not everyone was clean. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I have done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Thank you. You may be seated and may the Lord bless the reading of his holy word. You see, when we talk about shifting our attitudes as Christians, as Christ followers, it means shifting to be more like Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says that we are to have this attitude in yourself, which was also in Christ Jesus. We're going to talk a little bit more about that when we get toward the, the end of the message. But the thing that we have to understand is that being more like Jesus means making a shift from powering up to empowering others. To me, one of the most amazing things about this passage is that I think it it doesn't go the way that you might expect it to. You know, in verse 1, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave the world and go to the Father. And then according to verse 2, Jesus knew that the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Now, this is emphasized again at verse 11. And Jesus knew, according to verse 3, that the Father had handed all things over to him and that he had come forth from God and he was going back to God. And so he. Now, if you didn't know the story beforehand, or maybe you don't really know all of it now, what do you think would happen next? Maybe... Maybe you can just imagine Jesus, and and he goes and he raises his hand, he says, hey, guys, I have an unspoken prayer request. I've got a really big thing that's happening tomorrow, and I I don't really want to go into details, but could, could you be praying for me? In other words, I need you to minister to me because I've got a major crisis that I'm dealing with. Or maybe... Just maybe you can imagine Jesus trying to do some type of preemptive strike, And he says, hey, guys, before doing this whole Passover meal, I need to tell you about what Judas is planning and what Judas is doing. You see, Jesus, he knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and he was returning to God. And so he. 
See, Jesus, he could have used that moment right there to power up on his disciples. Do you, do you know what I mean by powering up? It means leveraging the power that you have or the position you have or maybe the knowledge you have or even the authority you have in order to, to dominate or to leverage against somebody, to, to try to control somebody else. Isn't that what we as human beings do? It never ends really well. You know, there's a, a cliche that says, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And, and why is that true? Well, where does bullying come from? It comes from arrogance and el elitism. Where does this whole idea that might makes right come from? Where does sexual harassment come from? The idea that because I am stronger, I have more influence, that I'm more powerful than you, then I can control you, I can dominate, I can leverage against you. I can take my power to gratify my own sinful, selfish desires. And we know exactly where it comes from, don't we? You have to go all the way back to the original sin. You know, eat of this fruit. Your eyes will be open. You can become more like God. Wow. You mean, I can be like God? Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? And we start to act like Simba, you know, in The Lion King? Free to run around all day. Free to do it all my way. I just can't wait to be king. And see, here is what is so different, so radical, so revolutionary, so countercultural, so heard of in Jesus' teaching and his ministry. Jesus was, and he still is king. Jesus was, and he still is God. He had perfect knowledge of the future. He had perfect knowledge of their hearts. He had power from God. He had authority. He had a captive audience of committed followers, his disciples who were all there. And he could have leveraged every single bit of that for his own advantage. But Jesus taught and he modeled that power is not primarily for the benefit of the powerful. So instead of powering up, Jesus empowered others. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he... He got up from the mill, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, who would have saw that coming? Washing their feet? Kind of disgusting and gross, isn't it? There were no paved roads back then. It was dusty, it was hot, their feet would have been sweaty, maybe, maybe mud and, and dirt starting to build up on them. Besides, everyone wore those Jesus slipper things. Foot washing, it was considered a necessary part of showing hospitality to guests. But it was also thought of to be such a menial task that even Jewish slaves were exempt from doing it. If you wanted your feet washed, you hired a Gentile to do it. You know, it was the, the lowest of low jobs. And yet Jesus washed his disciples' feet. Even Judas's feet. Let that sink in for just a moment. And this is so important to realize. Jesus didn't wash their feet instead of being their teacher and Lord. If you look at verse 12 through 15, when he had finished washing their feet, he put on clothes and returned to his place. 
Do you understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you should also wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. You see, Jesus, he didn't lay aside his power and authority in order to play act this role of being a servant. Instead, he was exercising his authority and his power in service to his disciples to teach them what it meant to bind ourselves to one another in love. Now he goes on, he says in verses 16 and 17, very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do them. Now, if you notice in there, the word servant is used. Because as we think about what it means to serve others, to lift them up instead of powering up ourselves, as we think about trying to to shift our attitude towards serving others, I want us to be clear on what that word servant means. And there are three Greek words in the New Testament that are translated into servant or to serve. You see one of them right here in verse 16. No servant is greater than his master. And that word that is used there is daulos. It comes from the Greek word deo, which means to bind. And so literally it means that the one who is bound to his master. And we think of a slave being in bondage. It is this idea that the daulos is not free to act on his own. His very identity is bound to who his master is. And so Dallas, it emphasizes the relationship of the servant to the master. It's a very common word in the New Testament. As I was doing research, it is used 126 times in the New Testament. In the Greek culture, there was absolutely no positive connotation to being a Dallas. You see, for the Greek, their sense of personal dignity, it came from the fact that they were free. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament puts it this way. Where there is Dalaman, where there is slavery, human autonomy is set aside and an alien will takes precedence over one's own. And so no one would have ever thought of a Dallas as being a a positive, life-affirming thing. Think about it in, in our own culture, our own culture's reaction. Whenever we talk about slavery, or today it's probably better said human trafficking, When you think about human trafficking, the idea is repulsive. It makes your skin crawl. It kind of gets you right in the gut. We aren't all that different from the ancient Greeks, are we? Personal freedom, autonomy is every bit bit as important to us as it was to them. So why would Jesus not only encourage his disciples to be Dallas, but he would go and model it himself? Why would he take the lowest, most menial, most degrading job of that of a servant and go and wash feet? But not only did he do it, he actually tells his disciples, you know, I've washed your feet, now you should go and wash one another's feet. And it's something that we don't do all that often. We really only do it like around Easter time. Why would Philippians chapter 2, verse 7 say that Jesus emptied himself and took upon himself the form of a Dallas. It's because Jesus saw that we 
already were. You see, we think that we're free. We thought that we, we have autonomy. But from the very day that we ate of the fruit there in the garden, thinking that it would make us like God, an alien will took precedence over our own. Paul says in his letter to the Romans that we are slaves, that we are doli to sin. He says that when we gave in to Satan's temptation, we offered ourselves to sin as obedient slaves. You see, without Jesus, we are not free to not sin. Bob Dylan says it this way in one of his songs. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. So why not serve a new master? Why not let Jesus set you free from the bondage to sin and instead bind yourself to him? Now you may be sitting there thinking, and I know I I did this, you might be sitting there thinking, okay, but that still makes me a slave. I'm still giving up my autonomy and letting some alien will take precedence over my own. And I would say to you, yeah, you're absolutely right. Welcome to Christianity. Welcome to following after Jesus Christ. You know, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ living in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith to the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. There's a blue bag right where the thing in the, there, that's Teo's toys. I have been crucified with Christ, and it's no longer I who live, but Christ living in me, and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. And that right there is the difference. We are binding ourselves to the one who bound himself to us first. Who bound himself to the cross, became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, slavery, it stinks if you have a master who is constantly trying to leverage, trying to power up against you. And that's why it never really works on a human level because it is our very nature to leverage the power we have for the benefit of the powerful. But Jesus instead used his power to give power to the powerless. That's why Paul, in many of his letters, he actually introduces himself as a Dallas of Jesus Christ. That's why James, James who is the half-brother of Jesus, introduced himself as a Dallas of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now there is a second word that is translated servant, and the word is diaconio. In Greek, it literally meant to wait on a table. In Acts chapter 6, some of the widows in the church, they're actually being overlooked for the daily distribution of food. And so Peter says, it wouldn't be right for us, talking about the 12, it wouldn't be right for us to neglect the teaching of God's word in order to wait on tables. That word there is diakonos, to serve at a table. And so they went and they chose seven men who would take care of the widows in the church and and some of the other needs there at the church, make sure that the widows are being taken care of. And that is where our word deacon comes from, diakonos. Here's the difference between Dallas and diakonos. Dallas, it emphasizes the relationship of the servant to the master, 
and diakonos emphasizes the relationship of the servant to the ministry. In this case, we could say to the different people around us would probably be the easiest way to say that. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus is telling the parable of the sheep and the goats. This is where he invites the sheep to come into eternal rest. And he says, I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. Thirsty and you gave me drink. Naked and you clothed me. A stranger and you invited me in. Sick and in prison and you visited me. And they're going like, hey, when did we do any of that? When did we see you and do any of that for you? And Jesus said, when you did it for the least of these, you have done it for me. And then Jesus, he turns to the goats. He goes through this whole list all over again. Except this time he says, you didn't do any of these things. You need to depart. You need to leave from me. And the goats are saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or sick or naked in prison and, and not do any of that for you, not minister to you? And the word there is diakonos. Lord, when didn't we deacon you? And Jesus' answer is, when you didn't feed the hungry or give water to the thirsty or clothe the naked or show hospitality to the stranger, comfort the sick or even visit the prisoners. Basically, Jesus says, when you didn't deacon them, you didn't deacon me. And so as we talk about shifting our attitude to one of servanthood, I want you to see how these two concepts, they actually go hand in hand. We bind ourselves to the master, but we're also committed to the ministry, the different people around and stuff. It isn't just about gathering for worship and Bible study. Being a good Dallas who is bound to his master, it's also about doing the work of the ministry. See, you can be a diakonos and not be a Dallas of Jesus. There are a lot of non-Christians, there are a lot of people in this world around us who do very good things. They work in soup kitchens. They help out at AIDS clinics, other things. They march for racial justice. But you see, they haven't bound themselves to Jesus as their master. So you can serve people without serving God. But you cannot serve God without serving people. You cannot be a Dallas without being a diakonos. And so if there's one thing that we really have to shift out of as a church, or even as individuals... It's this idea that all we ever have to do as Christians, as Christ followers, is to come here and, and, and soak up another Bible study, to come here and sit here for an hour, hour and a half on Sunday and just have a time of worship. It has to go beyond that. Okay, there's one more word for servant in the New Testament. It's not used very often. In fact, it's only used three times. The word is uperetis. H-U-P-E. R-E-T-E-S. It is a, a very specific kind of servant. The word it means an under oarsman or an under rower. You see, the Roman sailing ships, they used dozens of these uperetuses to, to move their ship when there wasn't any wind or to help maneuver the ship when they were trying to get into battle positions. If you've ever seen them, okay, older people, if you've ever seen the movie Ben-Hur with Charlton Heston, that's what Charlton Heston did as he's underneath the ship and he's rowing away as a slave. It was menial, thankless, back-breaking work. 
It was invisible work that no one ever saw. The work that was going on below the waterline. But you know, it was crucial work. The mission of that warship could not be accomplished without a core of uperetuses, under oarsmen. Remember, the Dallas emphasizes the relationship of the servant to the master. Diakonos emphasizes the relationship of the servant to the ministry, the people, if you will. And the uperetus, the under oarsmen, it emphasizes the relationship of the servant to the mission. What we're doing around here, I guess. You know, the truth is, a church couldn't function without a bunch of uperetuses. Invisible, unsung heroes who keep the church moving forward. And you, you may never see them above the waterline. But if you look around, they're sitting amongst you right now. A church, this church is cleaned. The water gets removed. The chairs get put up. Decorations go up. They get taken down. Microphones work. Our PowerPoint shifts most of the time. Baptistry gets filled. There's all kinds of things that take place that you might just take for granted. All because these oarsmen, you might never see, but the church can't really work without. They're crucial to the mission. And you might, you might think of it as, as grunt work, normal, everyday, menial stuff that it takes for an organization like a church to run. But before you t- write this type of servant off as maybe someone who doesn't have any other skills, pay attention to how it's actually used in the New Testament. Once it actually describes King David. It's in Acts chapter 13. Paul is, is preaching this message. He's there on the island of Cyprus, and, and he's telling them all about the history of Israel. He's going through Israel's history. And he says that David served the purpose of God in his own generation. The word served the purpose of God is Uperetus. King David, the greatest king in all of Israel's history, was described as an under oarsman. Paul actually describes himself in that way as well in Acts chapter 20. He talks about how his own hands have ministered Uperetus to his own necessities. And he says he did it this way so that he could show the people in the church that by working hard in this way, we help the weak to remember the words of Jesus. And so what does it take for us to shift our attitude from one of entitlement to one of empowerment? From powering up and leveraging power to helping others and enabling others. In a sense, I think Jimmy Buffett had it right, at least really close. It takes a change in latitude to bring a change in attitude. Or maybe we could better say it, it takes a change in altitude to have a change in attitude. We have to stop thinking so highly of ourselves for going to imitate Jesus. We may need to stop thinking about ourselves altogether. Have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being very nature, God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Do we need to change? Do we need to shift our attitude and start serving others? We're going to spend some time, the worship team is going to come up, we're going to spend some time just in worship. Think about it. Ponder that. 
is there something that we need to change? Is there a shift that we need to make? 